Hi, this is Garth Pillsbury. You may remember me from my part in Star Trek, both in Mirror, Mirror and the Cloudminders. Enjoy listening to Trek Untold. Hello and welcome to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. Today, we have the pleasure of talking to another character actor who appeared on the original Star Trek show from the 1960s. Garth Pillsbury appeared in two episodes of the original show. His first appearance was as part of one of the best episodes from the original series that has spawned many, many follow-ups that continue today, and that episode was Mirror, Mirror. There, he played a crewman named Wilson, who protects Captain Kirk from Mirror Chekhov, only to get socked in the jaw as gratitude from the captain after. He followed that appearance up with another role in Season 3 in the episode The Cloudminders, where he plays a troglite disruptor, a terrorist or freedom fighter, depending on your view in the episode, who's part of a group trying to gain more equal rights for his cave-dwelling people against the cultured and elitist people from a city named Stratos who literally live on the clouds. Yes, it's very much on the nose, but that kind of summarizes Season 3 of Star Trek, doesn't it? After Star Trek, Garth appeared in many other pictures, typically falling in the category of what I would call exploitation films oftentimes, but ultimately movies that just don't take themselves too seriously. One of those movies was written by Roger Ebert well before he'd become the world-famous critic that many folks know him from today. However, he did get to work on one of the earliest films that starred Kevin Costner, and he's got some good memories about that film. These days, Garth spends more time behind the lens as a photographer and cinematographer, and that included taking pics for Playboy. Mr. Pillsbury has had a very diverse lifetime of careers, and at 82 years old, he shows no signs of stopping anytime soon. Before we begin this episode, I'd like to remind you to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Trek Untold. All one word, no spaces. If you want to check out some of our Trek Untold merchandise, you can also do that on our Teespring store, which you can find on teespring.com slash stores slash Trek Untold, where we've got shirts, hoodies, mugs, stickers, tote bags, and all sorts of other things available to proudly display how much you like this podcast. If you're having trouble finding the link, just check us out again on social media, and you'll see us posting about it from time to time there as well. You can also support our show by visiting patreon.com slash trekuntold. If you're already following us or offering us your support, thank you for your help. Most of all, if you can't support us financially, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to the show. This helps more people find out about the show and helps spread awareness of Trek Untold. I'd also like to make a quick shout out to our friends at Triple Fiction Productions, who make some great 3D printed Star Trek inspired products for toys and people, but you'll hear more about them a little bit later on. Now, without further ado, let's beam up this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. Affirmative. Initiating program. And welcome back to Trek Untold. And joining me on the other side of the line is veteran actor, as well as photographer and cinematographer, Garth Pillsbury. Garth, how's it going today? Well, so far so good, except uh, I live here in Hollywood, California, just under the Hollywood sign. And the weather forecast uh, is kind of warm. Uh, I think it's supposed to get up to around 94 or so. Uh, which is, in my opinion, not good. But it doesn't have the humidity 
that the East Coast has, so it's not that bad. But once it gets over 100, which it does once in a while, uh, I find that quite uncomfortable. But other than that, everything's fine. Uh, I'm pretty much like the rest of the country, uh, kind of sheltered down. You know, I get out a little bit, but basically I'm here. Yeah, that's uh, what counts. Yeah. I do go for a bike ride. I try to, except I probably won't today because it's too hot, just to get some exercise, you know. Well, hopefully today we can give you some mental stimulation as we run down your history, your career, and just talk about all sorts of things. Okay, I'm ready. Go for it. First things first is I like to learn a little bit about who the actors were. You know, we like to talk about your whole career, but we also like to talk about who you are as a human being and your roots and origin story. So let's start off with where you were born, who your parents were, and what little Garth wanted to be when he grew up. Okay, well, let's see. I was born in New York City uh, many, many, many years ago, 1938, at a hospital I believe that no longer exists, somewhere around 2nd Avenue. And I grew up all over the place. Uh, my mother had wanderlust, lust, and she was a sculptress, uh, somewhat known. She has a piece at the Whitney Museum in New York City, a piece in San Francisco. And what was her name? Oh, she went under the name of Blanche Phillips, Blanche Philip, or it's either Phillips, Howard, or Jack, or Blanche Phillips. I'm not sure, but I think it was Blanche Phillips Howard. Uh, is was her name? Yeah, she'd be quite old if she was still here with us, but. Um, uh, she had wanderlust, and so at the age of approximately six o'clock, six o'clock, uh, approximately the age of six, uh, we moved to the San Francisco Bay Area. My uh, stepfather at that time was in the Merchant Marines, so it was just she and I took a train across the United States and landed in Oakland, California. Then we moved to Walnut Creek, California. Then we moved to Point Richmond, which is, this is all in the Bay Area, uh, uh, Point Richmond, and then to San Francisco itself, then to Marin City, then to Mexico, where I lived a year, then we lived a year, then we moved to Texas, the area of Brownsville, Texas, where we lived a year. Then we moved back to New York City, where I went to high school, uh, high school of performing arts there, to study acting. And then uh, finally got to the age where I moved out. My mother and stepfather, she had been married at that point, uh, an artist who was a painter, who was known as one of the California artists. And he actually did one of the murals at Coit Tower in San Francisco, and uh, because we were on a very limited uh, uh, income, um, we moved then to Mexico, where I lived there for a year, then to Texas, where I lived for the year, then back to New York City, and then she uh, moved to Greece, and then she moved to England. That's with uh, my then stepfather, then moved to uh, Bolinas, California. No, first she moved to um, Carmel area. Uh, then she moved up to San Francisco again. Then up to Bolinas, California. <laughs> she just kept, kept going. You know? 
kept moving. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. I mean, even just hearing how how many places you went to before you were even in high school is a little bit insane to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and and in, and in Mexico, there was no real school up till I guess it went to the third or fourth grade, something like that. And so I had a private tutor there. And actually, at the beginning, I disliked living in Mexico. It was a a culture shock. I didn't speak the language. I didn't know anyone. Uh, and uh, so it was a problem for a while. But I finally, uh, you know, got acclimated to it and uh, enjoyed myself uh, pretty much so. And then when we moved to Texas, that is when I don't know what took over. I decided I wanted to be an actor. And uh, luckily, the high school performing arts in New York City accepted me uh, extremely late. They just happened to have a dropout in their, uh, you know, classes that, uh, or the students they were willing to accept. And so I went there for four years and studied. Well, there they taught you in the drama department. They talked to uh, acting, of course, and voice and playwriting and makeup and on and on, you know. So it was uh, quite a, an education. And very frankly, if it had not been for performing arts, I hated school. But because of performing arts, I uh, got through high school. Otherwise, I probably would have been playing hooky all the time. <laughs> you know, I'm kind of curious because you said that you spent so many years moving around up until you got to high school. Uh, and even after that, there was more moving around. But uh, you know, I'm kind of curious if maybe the reason why you went into theater and performing arts was because that might have been a way that you were able to make friends and meet more people and have people to talk to. Does that sound like something that could be could have been what happened? I, you know, you know, as I say, I don't know what I was. I think thirteen or fourteen when we moved to New York City, and for some reason, as I said, while I was in Texas, I don't know where this came from. I suddenly decided I wanted to be an actor. Where we lived in Texas was actually outside of Brownsville on the beach. There were no uh, people, kids my age, to talk to. The school at that point was literally a mile and a, that I went to was literally a mile and a half from where we lived on the beach. But there was a channel that went from the Gulf of Mexico into Brownsville. And the only way to get to school was to go uh, take a bus to Brownsville, which was some 20 miles or 25 miles, whatever, then back up the other side of the channel to school and then back home again. The thing that occurred because as I say, I really didn't like school at all, <laughs> um, was we were living on the beach. It, I had to walk approximately somewhere between a half a mile and a mile to catch the school bus, which was there every day, Monday through Friday. And somehow or other, quite often when walking down the beach to, to the road where the school bus was, that I would give up and go swimming instead. So, <laughs> and of course, then I wrote notes uh, from my mother, please excuse Garth <laughs> from school yesterday. He wasn't feeling well. <laughs> and of course, they were not familiar with her signature. <laughs> and so apparently they either accepted it or decided it wasn't worthwhile pursuing. <laughs> I don't know. But, you know, once I got to New York City, of course, I, I went to this high school performing arts, and therefore I was surrounded with people who had the same interest. Performing arts at that time taught not just drama, but they taught music, photography, and dance. 
uh, all of those. And it was strange that photography was part of that curriculum there. Uh, I didn't take any of the courses there. We were uh, required to take uh, some sort of a dance class uh, once or twice a week, which is not my forte. <laughs> you know, it's sort of ballet or maybe modern dance. Although I enjoy modern dance very much these days to watch, not to do. I, I just don't <laughs> have any talent there. Uh, I no sooner finished high school when I got involved with um, a little theater or, or in New York City. And one of the plays I was in was directed by a pretty well-known, at least, theater director by the name of William Ball. And he directed a play called Ivanov, which is a Chekhov play. And uh, he was involved mostly with classical theater. And he knew uh, someone or some people in Ashland, Oregon, and uh, recommended uh, that uh, they see me and accept me as an apprentice. Uh, and they do just Shakespeare there at Ashland, or they did at that time. They may do other plays there now. And so I got involved with doing summer stock, mostly uh, Shakespeare. But then I also did in Nyack, New York, where my mother then was living, finally moved to, uh, a play, or they they brought in what's called package plays with stars, and I had the luck to play a rather large part uh, with Joan Blondell, who was certainly a very famous actress in the 40s, a play by the name of Come Back Little Sheba, where I played Arnie. Uh, and while I was back on the East Coast, I went to Burlington, Vermont, and did Shakespeare, Stratford. Uh, group 20 players uh, in Massachusetts. And people kept saying to me, Garth, you should go to Hollywood. You should go to Hollywood, you know. So I finally, uh, I met a woman, at a young lady at the time, uh, in Burlington, Vermont, where I was doing uh, Shakespeare, and I played Mark Anthony in Julius Caesar. Uh, let me see here. There goes my other phone. Who is it? Here we have to... Uh, I'll just have to, there. Um, what was I going to say? So um, she, uh, I went to Hollywood with uh, my then, she was an actress too, and uh, waited for the phone to ring, uh, which never happened uh, <laughs> for quite a while. Would do plays here in Hollywood and call agents up. You really have to have had an agent to get into the studios in those days. And um, I couldn't get an agent down to uh, see me in anything. But one of the plays I did was a play that was directed by Bruce Dern, uh, who you may may not be aware of, but he is a pretty well-known actor and was up for an Academy Award a few years ago for his uh, portrayal in Nebraska. Anyways, Bruce uh, said to me, Garth, he's, he said, you know, you're a very good actor. Do you have an agent? And I said, no, I don't have an agent. I can't get an agent to get here to see me in anything. He said, use my name. Tell them that Bruce Dern told them, you know, say to, say to them that he suggested you come down and see him in this play. And that's exactly what happened. I called some agents. A pretty well-known agent came down to see me. He uh, asked me, he wanted me as a client. I said, yes, 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 of course, of course. <laughs> uh, 
And I began to work a little bit then. Uh, I think the very first show I did was an FBI um, with, uh, I think it was Brad Dillman, but I'm not sure of the actor's name. And then, you know, I did a Mannix. I did all these uh, shows. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, you're mentioning a lot of shows uh, that you know I read up on your IMDb, and, and there's a few things that are clearly missing, like Mannix is not there. A few other things aren't there. Uh, so you know that's always a problem with IMDb. So it's glad I'm glad to actually talk to you to get more of that information. Um, but according to IMDb, the first role that you're listed at was from Twelve O'Clock High, uh, where uh, you played. A, it was a World War II drama you appeared in. Was that your first actual day of work, or was that just the first thing you did that aired? That was the very first show I was ever in. And the interesting thing about it is when it played, I never saw it. <laughs> and then I saw that somebody had uh, a copy of it for sale. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll watch it. I'll buy it and watch it. Uh, and even though I do have credit <laughs> for playing this part, I am not in it. Huh. I am not in the, in the television show at all. Really? Oh, they cut me out. I don't know whether it was because I was so bad. I don't think so. It was probably a question of timing. You know, they have a certain amount of time to put the show together for the commercials and everything. And they decided it was something that wasn't needed. And I ended up on the cutting room floor. But I have credit. Yeah, <laughs> well, all right. <laughs> Which I think is very funny. <laughs> Yeah, you're, you're listed, in fact, as being in, like, two different episodes. So were, were both appearances cut, or is there just some wrong information on your IMDb page? 12 o'clock, I No, no, I never heard from them again. Hmm, I okay. never heard from them again. But the show didn't run for a very long time, you know. Uh, what what happens here is you, you have an agent who keeps submitting you, submitting you, submitting you, and finally a casting director, somebody bites, you know, and you get to go in and see these people. But uh, they never did call me back. And uh, who knows why, uh, you know, but uh, it's it's unusual, actually, to be called on the same show back again to do the parts that I, I was doing, although it did happen on the soap operas yeah. several times I was called back. Now, obviously, you've had so much experience in theater at that point, but 12 O'Clock High being your very first TV appearance, what was it like for you to walk onto the set for the first time and see everything, see how different it was? Well, number one, you, you you feel as though when you're on stage, you feel, or at least I feel, and I think most actors feel, that there is an excitement of, of working in front of a live audience, and there's an energy that is being put forth because you need to project to an audience out there. Uh, the 12 o'clock high, I stood around waiting, uh, naturally, before they got to me, and uh, I thought, my God, these people are, are, are not doing anything. They're just kind of talking. <laughs> you know, there's nothing really energetic, nothing going on here, uh, which is, it's a different form of acting, generally speaking, I would say. And so when my turn came to actually do my part, uh, which was a pilot, and it was full of exposition, which is very difficult to do, I find, because you have nothing to hang your hat on. You're you're, you're just trying to come up with numbers and times and things like that, right. where uh, you're not involved emotionally, where you have something to spring from. But uh, the actor who was the star of the show, I believe at the time, uh, wasn't there. 
he had a dental appointment or something. He was gone. So the very first time I ever appeared on television, I was literally talking to thin air. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's nobody there, uh, which you find later on if you, you continue in this business that quite often if you're dealing with movie stars or television stars, they're not there. You know, they have usually a stand-in that you can look at. So I, I found it very nerve-wracking the, the uh, very first uh, time I worked. The other times I worked, I mean, as I recall, I was, it wasn't exposition. It was talking to someone, you know, which I found a lot easier. So not long after that, we come to your first Star Trek appearance, and that was part of the second season of the show. So I'm curious, uh, before we talk about how you got onto the show, did you ever watch Star Trek before, before you got on it? No, no, I didn't. I had never watched it. Uh, it was at that time for me. It was oh great, I, I got a part in a show, you know, like any of the others. Oh, I got a part. Uh, it didn't mean anything. Oh, look at this, Star Trek. I love Star Trek. I didn't really watch much uh, television for whatever reason. Uh, you know, it just didn't interest me that much. Although, I mean, I did watch some, of course, but uh, I never know. I never watched Star Trek. I never had. Now, of course, I have. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. tell us then, uh, how did you get first cast to appear on the show? Well, I got a call from my agents saying, Garth, there's a part on a show called Star Trek. Keep in mind, he said, the part that you are reading for is a kind of a wise guy. And I had come to the conclusion by that time, having been in Hollywood, that they have a tendency to typecast you. If you look like or seem like a very, very nice person, that's usually the kind of part you get. If you look like a gangster, that is most likely the kind of a part you will get. So I was brought in to do, uh, to read for this particular part. And I kept in mind that this guy was kind of like brash. He was a little wise guy, you know. So that is the way I behaved, not just when I was reading for the part, but uh, when I was being interviewed for the part. And But when I, after reading for the part, I thought to myself, I think I got this part. I think I did really well. So a week went by, and I called my agent at the time, and I said, uh, his name was Phil. I said, Phil, whatever happened with the Star Trek? He said, well, everybody liked you, but the director, he thought you were a wise guy. <laughs> I said, wait a minute. You told me that's what the part was. Well, anyway, so it was water under the bridge at that point. Then about a week later, I got a call from the same agent saying, Garth, guess what? They couldn't find anybody they liked better than you, so you do have the part. So that's how that happened. Oh, very cool. Uh, yeah, it was cool, right. And as you know, that that was the episode called Mirror. Mirror. And that is one of the most popular of the episodes that uh, that are, has been presented by Star Trek. Oh, yeah, it still know, is to this day. And, you know, I think at that time also the idea of a mirror universe was very new in sci-fi. Uh, when you first read the script, what did you think about it? Well, here again, as I say, at the time, at the time, Star Trek was another show. I, I didn't think about it. I thought I've got to learn my lines, you know, try to portray this character as presented. And uh, 
that's what I dealt with. I didn't deal with, I think I better watch the show. You know, I better uh, hone up on the rest of the show or all the other shows that are playing. I just went in and did it. I mean, because what often happens is you can have an idea when you walk in to do a, a part and then the director says, no, no, I want you to do it this way. I want more of this. I want less that. So it's not a good idea to really cement what you're going to do uh, when you get there because he's very likely to change it. And, and as I may have said, I don't think I have, uh, is that I find that the uh, film and television is very much a director and an editor's medium. Uh, I don't really find it so much an actor's medium because there's so much they can do to enhance and or even ruin a performance, you know. So uh, that that conclusion I've come to over the years because I personally think I've seen actors who I don't think are very good, but they come across really well on television and film. That's a so, very interesting, unique way to look at it. I've never really considered it before, but you make a very good point about that. Yeah, well, I, I really think so. I mean, a part of part. Sometimes when I tell people that I say, "How is it possible to get a Academy almost or a, an Academy Award performance out of a child who's six years old? How does that happen? You know, is the is the, is the child who's six or seven years old born a great actor or actress? I don't think so. I think they have a quality, and the director and the editor get are able to mold it. So that it, it 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 becomes outstanding, you know. That, mm, that's yeah. my feeling about it. I mean, I have seen well-known actors in parts which I thought they were not very good, but I really believe that it, it's not the actor who wasn't good; it was misdirected or miscut, uh, misedited, mis something like that. In other words, they stayed. Let's say, as an example, back on medium shots where if they had come in for a close-up where you could see on television the emotion, the thinking process that the actor is going through, it gives it much more uh, dramatic quality. Well, if you're on a medium shot, you quite often don't see that. So that's why I say it's an editor's uh, mm -hmm. uh, medium, I think, and, and or a director's medium. And sound, you know. Uh, it takes a village. Music, no, yeah. It's all sorts of things they can do. <laughs> Thank God, maybe. <laughs> yeah. So what yeah. do you remember about your first day of walking on set and getting your costume? What, what did you think about Star Trek, the bridge, and all that kind of stuff? Well, I mean, all that sort of thing, because I had never been uh, acquainted to that sort of a set, you know, the, the kind of a space thing. It's very impressive. It's very impressive. You know, what's going on? The other thing, you know, that happened with uh, that particular show, Mirror, Mirror, is that, uh, you know, it starts out, my scene starts out with uh, William Shatner walking out of an elevator. And as he steps out of the elevator, you see a fist come up and uh, hit him in the jaw, I guess. Uh, you know, and uh, then they usually cut to a commercial and then they come back. Uh, but he, uh, William Shatner, said, I said, you know, I was willing to throw the punch, but he didn't want me to. Huh. And, you know, thinking about it, of course he didn't, because here comes this young, ambitious actor who wants to make it really look good, and he might accidentally really hit him, yeah. which he didn't want. So he had a stuntman 
come in and throw the punch. But, you know, by the angle of, of where the camera is, you can't tell whether there's a connection or not. No, of course you not. You assume there's a connection, and you hear the noise, so you assume that he's been hit, you know. But anyways, that that's st- st- uh, stuck out of my mind, you know, at the time. He yeah. said, oh, no, no, he's not doing this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. I mean, it's basically your yeah. scene is, is essentially a wild brawl with you, Bill Shatner, Walter Koenig, and a few other actors as well uh you know did you do all of your own stunts during that fight scene oh no 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 they have doubles do that all the time you know yeah no i didn't do any of that that sort of thing but you did get uh punched out by bill by william shatner in that scene though is that true yeah 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 i mean that (laughs) that happened of course you know uh that's true that's true but I, i thought you meant you know some of the stuff that you see they use a double uh it's so quick, you you don't have time to recognize, or it's at an angle where they get people that look somewhat like you, yeah. you know, doing it. And uh, so, uh, but I mean, the only the only thing, you know, I mean, I've watched that episode now a couple of times because I was in it. Uh, but I, the only thing I really remember about it when doing it is what I have told you. You know, uh, I I do have what I consider an interesting experience due to that particular episode, which as we know, is very popular yep. that I've done a couple of these, uh, Star Trek conventions. The very first uh, convention I did was in Las Vegas. And, uh, I have a friend who sadly enough has passed away now who uh, suggested to me, uh, he had done the, uh, uh, deep space nine series. And he said to me, Garth, you ought to go to Las Vegas and do one of these signing things. You'll make a lot of money. And I'd never even heard about it or thought about it, but I thought, all right, I'll give it a shot. And he was right. Uh, you know, over a period of three or four days, I made a fair amount of money. But what's one of the things that stood out um, to me? Well, there were two things. One was that somebody came up to me and said, you know, it's you guys, the characters, you know, whether it's my character or somebody else that make that show. They're the ones who make the show. And secondly, the thing that I found very touching was a woman came up to the table where I was sitting and I had pictures behind me, big blown up, said some on a table. And uh, she started crying. <laughs> and I'm saying, I'm looking, I said, what's the problem? She said, I'm very emotional. I said, well, I am too sometimes. What, why, what, what, what's happened? She said to me, when I grew up, I lived, I think she said Brazil, but I'm not sure about the country. And I used to watch you in Spanish. Oh, then wow. I moved to Texas. And then I, be, I began watching you. And of course, you were speaking English. And now here I am in Las Vegas. And here you are. <laughs> she just emotionally was blown away that there I was, you know, <laughs> after watching me for so many years. And the interesting thing about that is then I went to Chicago and did did a show. And it occurred to me there that this is fascinating. Of course, the people in the Midwest, the Chicago area, all the neighboring states would come up to Chicago. It was Leonard Nimoy's last appearance at a convention. And so it was the last chance if you were going to try to get an autograph, et cetera, from him. And uh, it suddenly occurred to me that people who are living in uh, that area, it is a big deal. 
for them to actually uh, touch elbows, so to speak, rub shoulders, you know, with well-known or known actors. It's it's a big deal to them. And 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 one woman said to me, I have decorated my whole living room with Star Trek, uh, you know, pictures and gadgets. I am now working on the stairwell. <laughs> she was from Tennessee somewhere or something. I thought, this is incredible. You know, the people who are into Star Trek are really into Star Trek. Yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing fan base, isn't it? Yes, it, it certainly is. I mean, here it is 50 years later, and it's still going. Still going. Yeah, amazing. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. If you're a Star Trek cosplayer looking for props or a toy collector looking to spice up your shelves, Triple Fiction Productions has you covered. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D printed Trek inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. You can expect the same amount of care and attention to detail in any of the items in their catalog, whether it's a prop replica for use in a fan film, or part of a cosplay, or accessories and playsets for figures from Playmates, Migos, or Diamond Select. Own your very own tricorder or phaser rifle with working lights, the bridge of the Enterprise-E for your Playmates figures, or any other item from countless species and ships from the Star Trek universe. All products are 3D printed in the USA and are constantly evolving and improving based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit them at triple-fictionproductions.net or on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. Hello, I am Jose Betancourt, the host of Cheese, a photography podcast. My podcast covers everything photography, not the hardware side of things, but the adventure, my adventure in photography. I also have a few guest hosts who will hop on every now and then. They both have varied experience in photography, and they know way more than I do. So I pick their brains, and things that they tell us is really remarkable. So make sure you check out Cheese, a photography podcast. You can find it on iTunes or at RageWorks.net. We now return to Trek Untold. So when Mirror Mirror first aired on TV in 1967, did you watch the episode? I, I'm sure I did, you know. Uh, uh, as I say, the 12 o'clock one I never did see until I bought a copy of it. But I'm almost 100%. As soon as, if if the studios, they usually, somebody usually uh, alerts you that your show will be on, you know, on such and such a day. And I'm pretty sure I did watch it at that time. I don't remember watching it, but <laughs> I'm pretty sure I did. Well, looking back on your performance, how do you think you did? Did you like what you saw of yourself? You know, as an actor, you always, I think, always feel as though you could do, but you could have done better. Uh, I, I didn't find it. Uh, I didn't say to myself, "Well, this is bad," you know. But I didn't do well. But you always think to yourself, "Gee, I could have done a little more of this, a little more of that." You know, let me do it again. Let me do it again. And there were actors or are actors who do do that. They say, let me do it again, let me do it again. And if they're big stars, they get to do it again. Uh, if they're not a big star, the director says, no, we're moving on. <laughs> He's happy. They move on. You know. 
So I, I was not in the position to say at the time when I did it, like, I think I could do better. They seemed to accept it. So I accepted it. Well, they must have liked it because you came back to do another episode in season three, which was the Cloudminders. In that episode, you played a troglite disruptor. They, you know, as you know, they completely, which I found amazing. I mean, I was in two episodes of the FBI and two episodes of Star Trek and, and a lot of uh, episodes of certain uh, soap operas. But I, I was somewhat amazed that they did ask me to come back to do another show on a Star Trek. But, of course, I was completely uh, uh, dressed so unrecognizable, you know, with a wig and a toga and all sorts of things like that. Yeah, that was, that was a bizarre and, costume. Basically, purple pajamas, a blue hat with a long wig yeah, yeah, and silver yeah, glasses. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And, and the thing, that was, a, in terms of dialogue, that was, there was a lot more dialogue there than I had in Mirror, Mirror. You know, there was a scene that it really took uh, some a little bit of time. And uh, when I the thing that I, I left there with was the director came over to me at after I did the part, and he said to me, "Garth, you did a really good job." And so, of course, about you know, it's an ego builder, and uh, I always remember that. You know, <laughs> so there we go. Yeah. So yeah, you mentioned yeah. that scene that you did. That was with Jeff Corey, who played the character yeah. of Plasis. And uh, That's Mr. Right. Corey, That's right. he had a very, yeah. very prolific career since the 1930s, even up until his death in 2000. Uh, How would you like working yes, with yes, him? He, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I, I, ne- you know, it was a, you know, with film, it's like they turn, they do a master shot of some time, of some kind. You walk in, shows everybody, and then from then on, it's medium or close-up shots. And uh, so I never was face to face with him. It was at a distance. You know, I was being held by two guards at 20 or 30 feet away and having so. But in in a lot of television shows, you actually are face to face, nose to nose, you know. But uh, I mean, I certainly knew who he was. And, uh, you know, he was considered a very fine actor and worked, as you say, worked a lot. So, so we should add that Mr. Corey, uh, again, he started acting in the 1930s, and basically at the peak of his young career in the early 50s, uh, he was blacklisted uh, during the McCarthy yeah. trials and all that stuff. Um, yeah, so he did yeah. return to acting for quite some time, and Star Trek was one of his first appearances after returning from being blacklisted. But in between that, he became a very well-known acting teacher in the industry. He taught Leonard Nimoy, he taught Robin Williams, Bruce Lee, Jack Nicholson, Barbara Streisand, Richard Chamberlain. Very big list yeah. of very well-known actors and actresses. Did you get to chat with him at all about acting or, or anything else when you guys weren't working together? No, no, I never did. I, I did the show, you know, walked off the set. The, the kind of nice thing about that particular show for me financially was that the way the Screen Actors Guild works, that is, once they call you for a certain day, uh, they have to pay you for that day, whether or not they get to you or not. Uh, then they, they called it a rain check or something like that. And, uh, it turned out that, uh, I think I was called, uh, set to do the show on a Monday. They didn't get to me until Wednesday or Thursday. <laughs> so I kept getting paid oh, nice. uh, for not being there. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I remember that part, but I, you know, I certainly knew who Jeff Corey uh, is, was, but I never, I never talked to him. I never, uh, spent any time with him. No. Uh, I have spent time with Marlon Brando and Robert Mitchum, but uh, 
never with uh, uh, Jeff Corey. Well, I definitely want to ask about Brando in a moment, but I did just want to ask one other thing about this episode. Uh, and your scene ends with you leaping out of a window, falling to your death. Uh, do you remember? What do you remember about doing that? Well, I, I remember what I did is I broke, you know, I broke free, and then from then on, it was a stuntman. Mm, okay. Yeah, I never ran. I never ran up those stairs. <laughs> I never jumped. I never jumped. And as I understand it, I have didn't have that high definition television that as it shows me falling toward the planet. Uh, it is actually uh, some kind of a uh, animated drawing, and that in the old days, uh, the way that televisions were, you couldn't tell. But in the high def, somebody said, "Oh, you can actually see yeah. <laughs> that it's not a real person." You know, yeah, it's, I think it's literally just a cutout that they just shrink yeah, as they go yeah. on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, as I say, I thought that was that particular for me as an actor. It was that was the cloud monitors was more fun to do. Yeah, I mean, I think both appearances were a lot of fun to watch. I mean, you played two very different characters. Uh, you got to be Absolutely. punched by Captain Kirk, and you got to talk with a very prolific Mr. Corey. So yeah, I think they were pretty great That's performances. Right. Yeah, yeah, I did, I did okay. <laughs> I did okay. And yeah, and, and it was just amazing. I was, I was extremely lucky that I was in uh, two of those shows, and it became so popular. And by doing the conventions, uh, you know, I actually made a lot more money doing the conventions than I did doing the show. Yeah, it's amazing. And and even to, to this day, uh, at least usually two times a month, I get a fan mail. You know, would you please sign this? You know, uh, and I do believe that most people who are sending me these letters look up what they should say because they almost always say the same thing. I've been watching your career ever since the beginning. You are a great actor, you know, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. Could you please sign this? Sometimes they send money. Sometimes they don't. Uh, but, uh, you know, they said they do send self-addressed envelopes and a picture. So what am I going to say? No, I won't sign this unless you send me money. I'll sign it and send it to them then. You know. <laughs> Did you ever audition to be in any of the other Star Trek series? No, no, because uh, here again in Hollywood, it's pretty much your agent submits you. And uh, either you get a uh, call to go do it. I was rather unhappy that I was never uh, submitted or never called for anyway, any of the motion pictures that they did, you know, but if it, uh, but frankly, after a period of time, I lost that agent that I had who got me that particular show. And uh, uh, I don't know if, whatever agent I had, if they ever submitted me or that particular agent that if he did or she did submit me had the clout. Uh, agents have clouts. Uh, and many years ago, they had tremendous clout. You know, if they handled a major, major motion picture star, they could say, yes, he will do the part, you know, the major, the major motion picture star. But I want you to see, I want you to read this person for the, the other part. You know, so and and of course they want to use the star, so they do it. You know, so the breaking through. You know, I mean, one of the most famous ones was the Marty Balsam. Was it? No, was it? No, it wasn't Marty. Uh, this other actor who did the the part of Marty. Uh, it was a, a sleeper, kind of a low budget independent film that made him a star. You know, 
uh, and from then on, I forget his name now, but he also died. But, you know, he began to work and work and work and work because he, the film got great reviews and he did a good job. <laughs> you know, who knows? Who knows? So outside yeah. of Star Trek, uh, I've noticed on your resume, you did a lot of work with two directors in particular, and that's Russ Meyer and Larry Buchanan. And yes. Uh, yes. I'd say a lot of those films would kind of fall into the category of being a cult hit or maybe in some cases an exploitation film. And there's some pretty interesting things like Super Vixens, Mistress of the Apes, and Miss Melody Jones, which was directed by Bill Brom. But uh, I think the one that I found kind of interesting to me was uh, you were in Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, which was the first screenplay that Roger Ebert wrote. Uh, what do you remember about working on that film? Well, and the thing about Beyond the Valley of Dolls, yeah, Russ Meyer was pretty faithful to the actors that he worked with. And, of course, he used me in, this, in uh, uh, Super Vixens and then Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Uh, but uh, it was uh, really just a part of an extra. And uh, even though I've watched Beyond the Valley of Dolls a couple of times, I, I never, I miss me. I don't <laughs> see me, but apparently I'm there. You know, so it's a must be an awfully brief shot. <laughs> you know, I'm looking in the wrong place <laughs> when I appear. Yeah. Did you ever get to meet uh, Roger Ebert? I don't think I don't think so. Uh, you know, not that I recall anyway. Not that I recall. I do want to follow up then about the other comment you said a little bit earlier about meeting Marlon Brando. I'd love to hear about that story. Yeah. Well, what happened is in between acting jobs, most actors do things like you know they become waiters, cab drivers you know, bartenders, whatever. And in between acting jobs, I was uh, doing what's called handyman work. And I happened to uh, be getting some work with a uh, fellow who was an extra, who was also a contractor. And uh, he was doing work for people like Robert Goulet and uh, Wally Cox and work for Marlon Brando. And I said, Garth, I've got some work uh, at Marlon Brando's house. He wants to convert, I think it was his garage, into like a studio, which overlooked, I believe, the valley. Uh, it, it was on top of the hill on Mulholland Drive. And so I went up there, and uh, we were tearing out the studs and whatever. And uh, late in the afternoon, Marlon came out, and he grabbed a crowbar, and he kind of started helping to tear down uh, what was the garage. And afterwards, he said to me, uh, Garth, uh, would you like to come in and have a drink? <laughs> Later, I thought, are you kidding? Is <laughs> an actor is going to tell Marlon Brown, I don't know, I refuse to have a drink with you. So, yeah, I, we went into his kitchen. and But I had been told over and over again that Brando didn't want to talk about acting, mm, you know? Yeah. Because everybody wants to say, you know, how about telling me how you approach your part or blah, 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 blah. So I uh, avoided that. And we just uh, had a nice talk and a drink. And uh, something I said or a couple of things I said made him laugh. And that was kind of it. But I spent, I would say, anywhere from a half an hour to an hour uh, <laughs> talking to him, you know. And, of course, it stood out, stands out in my memory that, that I met the fellow. He was a, also a ham radio operator. Marlon Brando was. Really? And uh, I also am a ham operator, although I haven't been involved with it for many years. Uh, and I believe he went under the name of, he had a handle, so to speak, of Marty, I believe. Uh, but I never talked to him on the radio, you know, 
Well, I think he got that because he had an island somewhere around Tahiti, and uh, I think he was able to communicate with uh, his workers there. I'm not sure, but I think that's why he had it. That's a pretty good number to have Marlon Brando. Yeah, that's a story about Marlon. But I also have what I consider a very amusing story about Robert Mitchum. Yeah, I'd like to hear about that as well. I spent a whole afternoon with. And my wife, uh, who sadly enough has also passed away, she was extremely beautiful. And she was just offered parts where the rest of us in the field are like struggling. They were saying, here, here's a part, you know, because she was so good looking. Anyways, when she was here in Hollywood, she began to rub shoulders with some very famous people. And one of them being uh, Robert Mitchum and his wife. Got a call from a friend of theirs uh, who was coming down from the uh, from the Santa Cruz area to Santa Barbara to spend uh, an afternoon. And uh, would we like to come and join uh, other couple of friends for the, with them for lunch? I said, sure. So my wife and I went up there. And we're standing around in the living room and there's a knock on the door and, and in comes uh, this couple. And I have a very bad, very bad uh, memory for names until I get to know people. So we were introduced, but I didn't pay any attention. But then I looked over at this fellow who'd come in. I said, oh, my God, that looks just like Robert Mitchum. And then he said something. And I said, that is Robert Mitchum, you know, because <laughs> he had a distinctive voice. Oh, yeah. So he said, he said, why don't we go in the backyard and, you know, and talk? Uh, you know, my friend and, and, and Robert and I. So we did. Now, uh, Robert Mitchum loved to tell stories about his uh, career, you know, and things that had happened to him, whether it be on stage or in movies. And we talked and talked and talked, and we all told these different stories. And I told, I said to Robert Mitchum, I said, you know, that's very interesting. I said, at that time, I had already met Marlon Brando. I said, you know, I spent an after well, an hour or two with Marlon Brando at one point, and he didn't want to talk about acting at all. And this was Robert Mitchum's response. He said, of course he didn't. He can't act. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was amazing. They were just completely opposite the way they approached roles. You know, uh, Robert Mitchum kind of, I think, learned his lines and did it. I think Marlon Brando worked and worked on the part. I don't know, you know, because I've never been around Brando when he's actually working on a part. But I thought that was that was very amazing that he he would say that Robert Rob, uh, Marlon Brando can't act. <laughs> I said, okay, all right. <laughs> what am I going to say? <laughs> yeah, it's got me kind of wondering uh, what actors did you used to like to watch when you were growing up that you tried to emulate in your career. Well, I've always admired some of the uh, rather, uh, they're not necessarily movie movie stars, although I enjoyed Marlon Brando, especially in the parts like On the Waterfront and The Wild One and Streetcar. Uh, some of the other parts he did, I wasn't necessarily crazy about him. I also very much liked uh, Geraldine Page, who didn't really have that much of a movie career, but I thought she was a very fine actress. Ruth Gordon, I really enjoyed Ruth Gordon. Uh, certainly Orson Welles, you know, uh, very, very imaginative, uh, Orson Welles. And, uh, I mean, I, you know, if I thought about it, I probably, probably could 
come up with uh, several more. But those are the ones at the moment that stand out in my mind. So I'd like to also ask about one other movie that you did, and that's uh, one from 1983 called Stacy's Nights. Uh, and that was the directorial debut of Jim Wilson and was also one of the earliest films for Kevin Costner to be in. Uh, and Jim and Kevin would, of right. course, go on to work together on many big hits like Dances with Wolves, The Postman, The Bodyguard, and Wyatt Earp. Uh, what yeah. do you remember about working with Kevin Costner and Jim Wilson? All right. Well, of course, I never actually worked with Kevin because, you know, you show up on sets different times. Uh, by the time I got to my part, I'm pretty sure that Kevin had already left or hadn't shown up yet, whatever. Uh, what what I do remember about it is originally I thought, well, this script is interesting. It could possibly go somewhere, you know, do well, I thought to myself. It just had that right kind of thing about it. Uh, and I had a pretty good part in it. Uh, and then, so I did it. Uh, and then one day, this is quite a few years ago, uh, I got a call from one of my uh, daughters saying, Garth, you're on TV with Kevin Costner. I said, no, you're mistaken, because I didn't know that was Kevin Costner. I said, you're mistaken. I never did a film with Kevin Costner. She said, no, no, it's you, it's you. You're on TV now. So what had happened is Kevin had been nominated for an Academy Award for Dances with Wolves, and they were showing anything and everything that he had ever done, apparently, over and over and over again, uh, you know, because of that. And it was uh, Stacy's Nights. So that's what I basically remember about it. I have seen it. I, I remember being being uh, in Reno is where we did it. And I'd never been in a gambling town before. I was fascinated by it. Quite often in the casino itself, we were there very late at night uh, because they didn't want to disturb the clients too much. And uh, the fellow who uh, we did it at a place, the filming at a place called Mapes Money Tree, which I believe is went out of business, but they were having financial trouble then. And the fellow who took over the management of it, for some reason or other, decided that I was the movie star. <laughs> and he uh, he treated me royally. I mean, he would he would buy me dinner. He would get me tickets to shows, you know, free with dinner. That's not uh, bad at all. Yeah, it was just amazing. <laughs> he, he had the wrong guy. He should have caught on with Kevin, you know. He's the one who became a, a movie star. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. We have mentioned your wife a few times, and uh, I'd like to actually hear a little bit more about you and her. Uh, can you tell us who she was and how you guys met? Yeah, I was uh, belonged to a theater group, which no longer exists on Coinga Boulevard in uh, Hollywood, or maybe slightly in the Valley. Um, and uh, she was a member there. And it was a small little theater, maybe 30 or 40 seats. And she was sitting in the front row, and above the stage was a large clock, which was accurate. It was, you know, within a few minutes anyways, ticking away. And uh, I never really approached her because I thought she is good looking. She can <laughs> pick of anybody she wants. So here's this clock right above her. She, and I'm sitting right behind her. She turns to me and she says, do you know what time it is? <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> she found an excuse to talk to me. So uh, we w we went out, you know, et cetera, et cetera. 
Uh, I was uh, married at the time, uh, but I really, I really, but it was, I was my first wife. I felt, and I have a daughter in New York City by her. Uh, I felt my first wife was rather negative uh, about people and about life. And I thought to myself, I really don't want to spend the rest of my life with a person who has negative uh, leanings, you know, was always down, down, down on things. And my first wife's first name was Jacqueline, and her last name that she went under was Mayo. And as a model, I believe Jacqueline Ford. But anyways, Jacqueline was uh, one hell of a lot of fun to be with. One hell of a lot of fun. And uh, so, yeah, I I uh, left my first wife for Jacqueline. You know, yeah, I mean, she she is was a very very unique person. Very entertaining. Very entertaining. Did you get to do any uh, TV series or films together? You know, actually, uh, we didn't know it at the time uh, that we met, but we were on the same episode of The Invaders. Oh, that's right. That was from uh, 1967 also, right before Star Trek. Yeah, yeah. She opens the show, I believe. Uh, You know, the very first shot is of her. And then I think I play a doctor or something later in the show, you know. So aside from acting, I also read that you started to become a professional photographer. And uh, I think the client I'm most curious to hear about is when you worked for Playboy and for Penthouse. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, uh, at the time, we did Vixen, of course. And uh, Russ Meyer, of course, was a, uh, a, a photographer during the Second World War, maybe a cinematographer. I'm not sure what he was doing. But uh, anyway, he it was a very low-budget film. Vixen was a very low-budget film, which became very popular and he made a lot of money at. But he said to me, you know, Garth, uh, I guess I already was interested in photography. Why don't you do the stills on the uh, show and with the rights to them, uh, but I'm not going to pay you for doing them. <laughs> I said, okay, fine, you know. So uh, I didn't think much about it. Of course, they ran a whole spread in Penthouse magazine of some of the shots I took. Uh, you know, it was either the second or third or first issue of Penthouse. And then later uh, on, uh, Playboy wanted to know if I had any uh, photographs of Erica Gavin, who played Vixen. And I uh, said no, but uh, they wanted something to do with Thanksgiving. So I got Erica and I went up to a turkey farm somewhere around here <laughs> and I photographed Erica semi-nude, of course, and... Uh, In a turkey farm, uh, no less. So uh, that's that's how that happened, you know. Also, they, they while I was doing, while we were doing Vixen, they sent in a photographer from Playboy to shoot uh, stills. Now, I was shooting stills uh, on Vixen. It was, it was my dime. The film, etc., and the processing was at my cost. Russ wasn't paying for it. Uh, the Playboy photographer, of course, Playboy was paying for it, and the budget was unlimited. The sky's the limit, you know. So, uh, I, and I was kind of blown away. He said he had just gotten back from Hawaii, where he had shot 300 rolls of uh, a girl for a, a centerfold for for Playboy. I mean, I shot maybe five rolls, you know. Uh, so I, I was, you know, as I say. Money was no object to Playboy, but it was to me. <laughs> yeah, That's how that occurred. And so since then, you've also done some work as cinematographer on films as well. 
Uh, so was it through this Vixens that you kind of started to get an eye for cinematography? Well, I think by my B, I had always been, you know, even at the age of 17 or so, I was interested in cinematography. My father had given me a Bullock 16 millimeter camera when I was living in New York City. And uh, as I uh, was introduced to how films were being made, uh, you realize what you need to do. And so people had thought highly enough of me as a still photographer to ask me if I'd be interested in shooting a video for them. Uh, and so uh, I started out doing that. Uh, the Usually I, I found that they, the people who were asking me to do it, were extremely unknowledgeable about how to go about doing this. And I found it uh, upsetting. So I began to say to people, look, I'm not doing this where I'm the cinematographer, I'm doing the lighting, I'm doing the sound, I'm doing everything. You have to hire people to find the locations, to do the sound, to do the makeup. You know, this this is too amateurish for me. Uh, I want to, if I'm going to do this, I want it to get better and better and better. And, uh, but almost always, they promised they were going to do it, you know, that is, do it professionally on their end, and ended up that it wasn't, that I ended up doing part of it anyway. And, uh, you know, you, you want to be, you want to be proud or feel as though you're being creative with what you're doing. And so, uh, unless you have a budget, it's not the way to go, you know, for me. Uh, so, but on the other hand, uh, I do a lot of still photography. And I have a website, and uh, without any advertising whatsoever, I've had close to 15,000 people looking at that website, which I find uh, quite uh, amazing. You know, without advertising, all these people apparently, and they're from all over the world, you know, people in China, Germany, and you name it, and the United States, of course, Russia, you name it. Uh, go to this website to look at. And I think that some of my photographs are quite good, but there are a lot on there that I don't. Now looking back at them, I think they're not very good, but I leave them there anyway. <laughs> so what kind of stuff are you shooting these days? Well, I'm not doing much at the oh, moment. Because at the I'm moment, yeah, so we're not cold. doing anything. <laughs> <laughs> not getting out much. Although I did, I did uh, shoot a, a flower or something up the street the other day. But I had also... Uh, I'm interested. The last thing, the project that I did, which uh, uh, I was impressed with some of the stuff I did, was some street photography that I did in Cuba. Mm, I uh, saw those on your website, actually. Yeah, yeah. So, I, you know, but I wanted to give, give a shot at doing street photography. And here and there, I've done it in the past, but I made a literal project while there of doing that. And I, I thought I captured some interesting photographs there. I would like to do that here in Los Angeles, too, or somewhere else in the world, you know. But it's not very possible at the moment. Hopefully That's when things get better, there. you can come back to New York and do it over here. I, I've been in New York, and I love New York, and I would live in New York. i tell you what, I would live, well, except for the pandemic. I would <laughs> live in New York now if I could afford it, you know. But four or $5,000 a month for an apartment is beyond my budget. Uh, luckily, I own the house that I live in. 
I live below, just below the Hollywood sign in Hollywood. Oh, lovely. I live in a house that uh, was what's called a craftsman, a unique house, very nice, very nice house, um, and uh, extremely fortunate. And, and the buying of that house, by the way, was through my wife. She had, by a previous marriage, five daughters, and uh, we we were had to be leaving the place where we were staying. She was driving up the street. This woman was pounding a sign into the uh, you know the, the uh, curb area, house for for lease. She told the kids stay in the car. She didn't want to scare the the <laughs> woman. She said, "I'd be interested in your house." So she rented to us, and luckily she took a great liking to us. I had gone to Tunisia to do a film. We had moved out of this house because they kept raising the rent, and I wasn't making that much money. Uh, came back from Tunisia, hated the place where we were then living, ran into then la- the owner who asked me if I would like to, we would like to move back in and would not raise the rent. And I said, yeah, sure. Uh, this, this, uh, the owner, the male, said, would you be interested in buying the house? I said, yeah, but I don't have any money. He said, I'll tell you what, you pay for the escrow fee, and I'll take back the mortgage. So the escrow fee was $500, and it was just paying him. I didn't have to go to a bank or anything. I bought this house, which is now worth between a million and $2 million, for $45,000. Wow, you cannot do so that anymore. I am a millionaire on paper. You know? <laughs> but so what? I mean, I could go to Spain and buy a castle, you know, <laughs> if I wanted to live in Spain, I guess. But uh, extremely fortunate. Yeah. You know, otherwise, I'd be living in an apartment somewhere. So, yeah, and this is a beautiful house, a beautiful house. Uh, so, Mr. Pillsbury, you've worked for many decades, but what is the favorite day you've ever had on set somewhere? Or what is your favorite role that you did? Well, I think that my looking back at it, my favorite role was playing Mark Anthony and Julius Caesar, you know, in the theater in Burlington, Vermont. I think that was my favorite role in terms of, of, of television, you know, and or film. Uh, my favorite roles would have been one that was never released that Larry Buchanan had directed. It was originally called uh, The Rebel Jesus. Then they changed it to the Copper Scrolls of uh, Mary, Mary Magdalene. Magdalene or something like that. Yeah. And uh, so that would have been a really good role if, uh, you know, to, well, if, to, I did it, but it was never really released. And, uh, you know, and then the others, of course, was a nice part in uh, Stacy's Nights, uh, you know, which which is also was called something else at one point. After, oh, Double Down. Originally, it was called Double Down, and then they changed it to Stacy's Nights. So, I mean, there's, there's partly because they were larger roles, you know. Yeah. And so I, I remember them as being the ones that I liked to do the larger the role. You know, that is, especially if you feel as though you did uh, did it well. Yeah. If I feel as though I've done something poorly, uh, then, of course, I don't mention it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the one thing I kind of noticed as I was looking through some of your work is I felt like, you know, you should have been more of a leading man in a lot of your stuff. I mean, you had the look, you have the ability, obviously, especially on shows like Star Trek. You could have been on way more episodes. I would have loved to have seen you in more things like that and really show us what you can do. Yeah, I mean, listen, listen, I agree with you, but it's the <laughs> luck of the draw, yeah. you know. As I say, part of, part of the problem here in Hollywood is having a really good agent. Good agent meaning an agent 
who has uh, the ends. Uh, there are lots and lots of agents here who are submitting 100, let's just say an example, 100 people for a part, hoping that one of those people will get picked. Uh, but they're not going to, the parts being submitted for are not starring roles. They're smaller parts. They they want to hire people who are well known, and uh, you know because they consider once again though, that's box office, you know, uh, you know like Leonardo DiCaprio is box office and Johnny Depp is not box office. Uh, oh, by the way, I, I'm very good friends with Leonardo's dad, and I've met uh, Leonardo a couple of times, you know, uh, a nice, really nice guy, but I really don't talk to him much, you know. Because everybody wants to talk to him, uh, but Leon, but his dad is a sweetheart of a guy. You would never recognize Leonardo and his dad huh. as being related. Uh, George, his name is George DiCaprio. George has long hair down to his shoulders. He looks like a hippie. You know? <laughs> it's just amazing. But he is a sweetheart of a man. He really is. You know, I did do this video, uh, which he financed. He loved my wife as an actress. And he said to me, uh, I said to him, I had this little script that uh, one of my daughter, one of my wife's daughters wrote, and I'm thinking of doing it. And he said to me, I'll give you some money to do it because he loved her so much, thought so highly of her. And I thought he was talking about, oh, I'll give you a couple of hundred dollars. You know, he said, no, I'm going to give you $5,000. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, really a nice, really a good guy, really a good guy. Yeah, and uh, he takes me out for breakfast once in a while. You know, he calls me up, says, "Let's go have breakfast." You know, <laughs> he he George uh, and a fellow by the name of Paul Fleiss, who was a pediatrician, who was the father of Heidi Fleiss, the well-known madam in Hollywood. George, myself, and uh, Paul used to go uh, on hikes uh, with a couple of other people. Also, uh, every almost every day for many, many years, you know. So we became very good friends. So I know there's a lot of aspiring actors listening to the show today. And, uh, you know, it's someone with yourself who's got so much experience doing Shakespearean theater as well as acting on TV and film. Uh, do you have any advice you can give to anybody listening today who wants to become an actor? The advice is it's extremely frustrating. I think that if one wants to do it, uh, one should give it a shot. I mean, I used to really beat myself up for many years when I was younger because I wasn't working or working enough. You know, you you look at my career and you say, oh, he did a lot of stuff. Yeah, but it's over so many years that you work for a week and then you don't work for a year and then you work a couple of days another year and then you don't work for six months. And, you know, it's, it's and if that's what you want to do in life, and that's how I got involved with photography. Because photography, I can do when I want to do it. There's nobody says, you know, I'm going to hire you to do a show. Yeah, I don't necessarily get paid to do photography, but it's a creative outlet. I am involved in a theater group now, and I can act. And, the, and at this point in my career, my life, is uh, I have a pension, uh, and I don't have to get paid. I can decide I want to do some acting because I want to do the acting. Not that I need to make a living at it, you know. Uh, but it, it, but in terms of uh, advice, uh, it is Hollywood is 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 a look. It's having a good agent. Uh, 
you know, uh, <laughs> it's it's extremely competitive. Everybody in the world says, "Let's go to Hollywood. I want to be an actor." You know, so, but it can happen. Uh, but I know too many people, sadly enough, who have uh, devoted their whole life to theater, and they at the age of 60 or 65, whatever, are trying to live on Social Security because they never really made a living, you know, mm -hmm. at any So not too long ago, back in May, you just celebrated a pretty big birthday. You just turned 82, right? Yeah, right. I did indeed. So belated happy birthday, but uh, <laughs> what do you attribute uh -huh. to your longevity and good health? Uh, lack of women. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's a good piece of advice. I've ever heard one. Yeah. I mean, at this point, it is. No, I. you know, it's interesting. On my mother's side in particular, they had all had long lives, except for my mother. But my mother's brothers lived into their 90s, uh, both and her sister lived into their 90s. Uh, on my father's side, uh, 75 and 85, my father was 75. But I, I think at this point, um, I think my father would have lived much longer if he'd taken care of himself. But he, he hated, as a lot of us do, doctors. Why do we hate doctors? Because we go there and say, uh-oh. They say, uh-oh. You, know, <laughs> you don't want to hear that. <laughs> so you don't go see them. Uh, but I would say at this point, whatever longevity I have is due to, I do try to take care of myself. You know, I, I'm trying to keep my weight down. I think there comes a point at a certain age, even though you don't change your habits, you have a tendency to put on weight. Maybe it's the junk food that we eat. I don't know. But I try to eat well, and I get exercise, and uh, I enjoy life. I enjoy life. So I think that has a lot to do with it. I don't sit around, do nothing. I have things to do. Yeah, you know, I love music. I love listening to music. I also am learning to play uh, saxophone and the clarinet. And, uh, I, you know, I'm trying to put together an audio production of Julius Caesar. I'm involved in a theater group. You know, I mean, so I'm active. I'm not sitting around waiting to die. Are you going to be acting part. in that Julius Caesar production? I am. Yes, yes. I'm playing the part of Brutus. Oh, there you I thought, yeah, when I started it, I thought, well, I'll just do the part of Brutus, not realizing that he was really the lead. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I thought, I thought for some reason or other that that Mark Anthony was the lead. He's not the lead. It's Brutus. Brutus is the lead. <laughs> well, you've got some work cut out so, for you then. Yeah. <laughs> but anyways, this a production that's been going on for a long time, and the problem now is that how do I get together with some of the actors to record them? because I can't really get out with my microphone and the, and the recorders. You know, I've got most of the parts taken care of already, but there are some parts that I still need to fill. And I tried using Zoom, which can be used if the person on the other end has a good setup, has a good microphone, has a good, you know, quiet room that's not echoing, etc. I can do that, but most people don't have a setup. You know, they're just using their computer, the microphone in the computer. Uh, they're in a room sometimes which echoes. So it's not as easy to do as one might have thought, you know. But it's 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 a project uh, that I didn't realize how difficult 
It is because if you don't, I, I, what, what, what I'm doing is putting in sound with it. You know, in other words, footsteps, music, uh, crowds, uh, cheering. Yep. You know, all, all the all foliar work. Of, yeah, follow work. Folio work. So, it, it finding the right thing that works. You know, and and so uh, sometimes it becomes a little discouraging because it's so overwhelming. You know, doing all of this, but uh, it's coming along. I'm chipping away at it. Yeah, yeah. And it sounds very good, I think, for what I've done so far. It really sounds good. You know, I play it sometimes for people. This is before the pandemic that I was getting people to be in it. And uh, I'd say, listen to this. And they say, oh, I say, I would like you to depart. Listen to this. And they say, oh, that's Yeah, I would like to do it because it does sound good. You know, <laughs> so, but uh, it's taking, it's taking my toll in terms of being patient. Yeah. Mr. Pillsbury, last question for you today, and that is, what is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? What is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? Well, I, I suppose uh, to some degree, uh, leaving somewhat of a, uh, a mark uh, in history, I suppose. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It's uh, it's. Uh, I think you definitely exciting. learned something before with how the fans still remember you and they and they still want to see you. I mean, that that must be pretty exciting, also. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So I, I guess I guess that's it. Uh, you know, and and uh, it it just it really amazes me, frankly. You know, that this many years later, there are people, new generations, who say, "Oh, I love that show." You know. I, you know, they weren't around in the '60s and early '70s, but there, there's a whole new generation of people who turn this on. Uh, so it's, it's really, uh, be having been part of it is uh, quite gratifying. And not only being part of it, but being one of the few people in the world who can say they got punched in the face on screen by William Shatner. Yeah, yeah, right, <laughs> right, right. All right, well, Mr. Pillsbury, thank you so much for chatting with us today and sharing these stories with us. We appreciate your time, and of course, live long and prosper as always. Well, thanks for taking the time. It was, yeah, it was fun doing this. You know. Yes, I wish Have you good health. Uh, stay safe, Queens, and again, thank you so much for joining us today on Trek Untold. Okay, thank you very much. That was our chat with Garth Pillsbury, a real inspiration to folks out there to stay busy and keep being creative. Mirror Mirror was the debut of the Mirror Universe in Star Trek, something that has been revisited again and again and again, and always to the excitement of the fans. It would be about 30 years, though, until it officially showed up again on television after that original appearance, returning not in The Next Generation, but in Deep Space Nine. There, it would become a recurring element, and we'd see it revisited again in Enterprise and Discovery, where we'd once again visit these parallel dimensions with their mirror counterparts. But the one that I think I've enjoyed the most that isn't on the screen, and that I want to recommend for you guys today, is the TNG Mirror Universe comics from IDW. Now, IDW has also done some for Voyager, but I think the next-gen stuff has been very strong so far and very enjoyable. So if you like comics, you're going to really like this take on the Mirror Universe idea with the characters from the Next Generation series. I should also add that the original next-gen comic series from DC Comics also did a Mirror Universe story arc written by, I believe, Michael Jan Friedman, but it was quite different from what you might expect. In those issues, Picard had remained Locutus, and the Borg had been storming the galaxy, taking over planets, and destroying whatever they felt like destroying. Those events led to the mirror crew of what was left of the Enterprise to abduct the normal universe crew in order to gain access to a card that had freed himself from the Collective, hoping to find a way to replicate that and save their universe. 
It's also a standout part of the DC Comics run on TNG that Michael Jan Freeman had done. So basically what I'm saying here today is read more comics, especially when they involve parallel dimensions. And as for the Cloudminders, well, it isn't one of the strongest episodes of Star Trek, but it almost got a second chance to come back to life. Manny Koto, the executive producer of Star Trek Enterprise, had previously said he wanted to revisit the planet in the fifth season and take the crew to Stratos, but obviously that plan never came to fruition. While it would have been interesting to see the roots of Stratos and the Cloud City and all that kind of stuff, I really wonder where they could have taken that episode besides just being a brief nod to the original series. If you have any ideas, of course, do let me know, because I'd love to hear some fan theories on what you think would happen to this place before and after the Enterprise visited. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Trek Untold. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this show, and if you can, leave a review and rating. We would appreciate it very much if you did. You can also follow us on social media. Just look for Trek Untold on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you there, and of course, we'd like to hear your thoughts about this week's episode. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can check out patreon.com slash trekuntold to learn how you can keep our ship operating at full power. And you can also check out some of our merchandise at teespring.com slash stores slash trekuntold. Once again, thank you to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions, and shout out to Scott Ray for setting up this interview. If you'd like to book this week's guest for a convention appearance or an autograph signing event, email scott at scottray67 at aol.com. This has been Trek Untold. I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and until next time, fortune favors the bold.